podcast one production. G'day, I'm Chris Russell and welcome to Agriminders. In our earlier interviews in this episode, we've heard from Monsanto, the developers and major suppliers of glyphosate, which in their case is known as Roundup, and is very much in the sights of the legal and regulatory systems as a potential cancer-causing chemical. And also from the peak body, which represents those who are both the potential beneficiaries and the victims of this transformational chemical that's now under suspicion. Now, the first red flag on this chemical went up in 2015 when the International Research Agency on Cancer, known as IARC, and which is part of the World Health Organization, researched the risks associated with glyphosate and determined that glyphosate was a probable carcinogen. A member of that agency at the time and a global expert on the causes of cancer is distinguished Professor Lynn Fritchie from Curtin University in Perth. Lynn is a cancer epidemiologist who has led many large international studies investigating both occupational and non-occupational causes of cancer. She is particularly interested in improving the way we assess historical exposure to chemicals in our workplace and has published over 300 peer-reviewed publications in national and international journals. Lynn was a co-author to the 2015 report, which has underlain these claims, and she joins us today. Welcome to AgriMinders, Lynn. Thank you. Lynn, what's an epidemiologist study? So epidemiologists study the causes um, of disease in human populations. The word comes from the same root as epidemic, so we kind of study patterns of of disease through um, the population, what causes them, what kind of trends they have, uh, are they increasing or decreasing, those sort of things. So epidemics of diseases, including chronic diseases such as cancer. So what made IARC, this international agency, decide to study glyphosate? Every about five years, I call a panel of experts and they ask the whole world, really, what sort of agents need to be looked at next. As you can imagine, looking at each agent is quite a time-consuming procedure and so they can only do a certain number per year. And so every five years they say, what do you think we should do next? And they have a number of criteria as to how to choose those. But one of the things that came up in the last advisory committee was pesticides. They haven't been a lot of um, examinations of pesticides for carcinogenicity and obviously that's something that's of great concern to a lot of people. So they had a short list of pesticides and they chose glyphosate as one of the ones to look at because, as you say, it's a very commonly used pesticide. So having decided that, what process did you and the panel go through to establish what the risk was associated with glyphosate? The IARC panels consist of four subgroups. So there's a group that look at exposure, so how a human can be exposed to glyphosate. And for glyphosate, it's um, not only the people who are working with it, who are spraying it or um, using it in, in, on their farms or their, or their um, gardens, but also people who might get exposed through um, contamination on food or through um, other ways of, of getting exposed. So that's the exposure group. Then there's the human studies group who look at all the studies that have looked at whether glyphosate causes cancer in humans. 
And then there's the animal studies group, which look at all the studies in animals. So look at um, experiments that have been done giving um, people, giving, sorry, giving animals um, glyphosate and seeing whether they develop cancer. And the last group is called the mechanisms group. And they look at the effect of glyphosate on cells and on the chemical, on the, the DNA and the processes within cells. Okay, so was this a process of testing yourselves or was it a, a review of literature? No, we didn't do any testing ourselves. We reviewed the existing literature and it had to be literature that was available and peer-reviewed and available in, in, the, in the public domain. And how did you decide which literature you would include and which you didn't include? Was peer review enough? Um, no, um, there are a different criteria for the different um, for the different groups, but basically it had to be a study that was peer reviewed, was published and available, and that when you looked at the study, when the experts looked at the study, it was clear what had been done. So there was enough information about the methods to decide whether those methods were appropriate or not. So if it was very short, sometimes little abstracts with only a few hundred words aren't enough to know exactly what was done um, and, and to have confidence that that is, was an was a, uh, appropriate study to use. And did you weight all those studies or was there some sort of statistical meta-analysis done on all these studies? No, we don't do meta-analyses on the whole. Sometimes there are enough studies that are similar enough to do a meta-analysis, but on the whole there aren't and certainly with glyphosate there weren't enough to do a a meta-analysis. So it's more a qualitative look at each of the studies and coming up with an answer. So do you think that we're a bit short on good information about the safety and the risks of glyphosate? So one of the implications of the of the IR giving it a probable carcinogenesis um, classification is that often this stimulates researchers around the world to go and do more studies, and that's that's one of the positives about um, the the process is to get more more studies done. So when you classify these, Lynn, how, what are, how did you what do you break them up? How many groups, and what do those groups mean? So there are four groups. Group one is carcinogenic to humans. And what the groups are based on is the strength of evidence. So they're not how strong the carcinogen is, they're how much evidence there is that some of that agent can cause cancer. So if there's a lot of evidence, it's quite convincing something like asbestos is a group one or carcinogenic to humans because we have a lot of evidence from a lot of different places that there is carcinogenicity caused by asbestos. The next group down is 2A, which is probable carcinogenic to humans. And that means that there is some evidence and it seems to be coherent, but it's not quite enough to be really definite about it. So there's there's some evidence, but not quite enough. And the next level down is possibly carcinogenic, which is a little weaker and suggests that there is some evidence. It's not that consistent. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. And the bottom two are, are there's not enough evidence to, to look at this. Well, so one of your conclusions when you came up with the classification of glyphosate in your second group there was that it was, uh, there was quite good evidence for it being toxic to your chromosomes, to your genes. What, what was the reason for that? So that's the mechanistic group. They look at um, all the experiments that have been published, which basically put glyphosate or glyphosate formulation on top of cells or on top of um, mainly cells or, or else look at it with, um, in, um, with regards to structure and see whether or not those, that causes 
damage to the DNA. And in this case, they found that there was quite a lot of evidence that glyphosate did damage DNA. So I, I had a look through all of the list of, of, of substances that have been put in this class 2A, the second highest class, and there seems to be a very wide range. I mean, at one, range, one end of the range, you've got things like dieldrin and DDT, which I think would be perceived by most of the community as being dangerous and, and in fact, have been banned for a long time. But at the other end of the scale, you've got things like red meat and hot drinks over 65 degrees, like tea or coffee and emissions from burning wood in your house. And I don't think most people would rank those alongside, in perception anyway, with dieldrin and DDT. Where does glyphosate lie in that sort of spectrum? So I guess it's important to remember that this isn't about how strong the the cancer effect is. And another thing to point out is that this is just about cancer. With dildren and DDT, there are also effects on reproductive effects and reproduct and effects on the environment. So it's a lot of the um, the public understanding of the dangerousness of those chemicals is is about broader than just cancer, whereas IARC just looks at cancer. So there's a whole lot of different things that are going into uh, the public's perception of how dangerous a chemical is, but IARC is only interested in cancer. And getting back to the issue of how strong the carcinogen is, red meat is, is not the same as smoking. It's not saying that, you know, you just eat one piece of meat and you'll get cancer. Um, it's it's saying that there's enough evidence that that red meat eating red meat can cause cancer. But but the implications, Lynn. I mean, because they've come out and said that hot drinks over sixty five degrees are group two A. There's no one been talking about banning coffee shops, but yet there are governments talking about banning glyphosate, even though it's in the same category for reasons of of risk of cancer production. So how do you resolve that? that kind of dilemma there. So this is rather technical and a little bit complicated, but it's the difference between a risk assessment and a hazard assessment. So IARC do hazard assessments. Hazard assessments say, is it possible that this chemical can cause cancer? And a risk assessment says, under normal circumstances of use of this chemical, so that might be having, you know, 100 coffees a day or one coffee a day, how likely is it that this will this person will get cancer so what's the individual risk and that's more a numerical number and the numbers would differ the other aspect that goes into this idea of worrying about something causing cancer is the fact of whether it's voluntary or involuntary so voluntary um i mean people still smoke even though it's it's a carcinogen and that's a voluntary thing but those same people may be quite worried about the fact that there might be some chemical in the water which is at a very low level and probably won't give them cancer but is is still a cancer causing chemical it's a little complicated i'm sorry no no i i hear what you're saying but i mean you know so let's say there was a guideline came out to say, okay, you can't drink more than 10 hot drinks a day. What would the guideline be then for crop producers? I mean, clearly the registration label gives them safety guidelines, although I notice in one of your documents you indicate that sometimes the labels are disparate from the bottle. But nonetheless, the safety directions tell you you shouldn't be, you know, getting covered in this stuff when you're when you're spraying it. But how do farmers actually get the same guidelines on what they should do to avoid the risk? 
So it's important to realise that the safety directions are not on the labels of pesticides in Australia. The main safety directions that you need to protect yourself from a chemical, uh, from a pesticide in Australia is on the safety data sheet, the SDS. So it's really important for people who are using glyphosate or any pesticide to look up those those um, SDSs. And you can find them on the web very easily or anyone who sells a product should be able to, should by law, give you those um, SDSs. And the SDS for glyphosate actually says that you should wear eye covering, head covering, um, uh, impervious gloves, uh, apron and, um, and a respirator. Not a, just a mask, but a respirator. So if, if farmers do that, does that effectively, if they follow those directions, does that effectively um, eliminate the risk back to very low? So that's the manufacturer's um, instructions and we're, as I'm very happy that that is, that is a way to reduce your risk considerably. So once again, I would say to you, you know, where's the SDS for drinking coffee? Well, that's not regulated under our chemical regulation scheme in Australia, um, which is another whole area of debate. Do you think that there's any room for actually breaking that two-way up a little bit more into, you know, people would perceive a very big difference in those products and yet they're all classified in the same way and consequently that might tell them to be underwhelmed by the risk of glyphosate or they might be overwhelmed by the risk of Mm. drinking coffee. I think that's one of the problems with IRQ is communication because it's all very scientific and it's directed at scientists and technicians. It's not directed at the general population. And that may be something that, that needs to be improved about how to communicate these hazards and how to make sure that people don't misinterpret it and say um, eating meat is as, as bad as asbestos. It's, it's, not, it's not looking at that question. So, Lynn, do you think that IARC has a role in, I I know you've said that you've hinted at the fact that people need to do more research, but do they have a role in actually um, uh, instigating that additional research or is it really just a reporting authority? Um, IARC don't do that kind of research themselves, but they certainly try and stimulate it and support it wherever they can, particularly in low and medium income countries where there might be quite a lot of exposure to people. Um, I think what IARC do is the first step. Once IARC have, have looked at something and said, look, there's a possibility of a problem for cancer here, then then other organisations need to, to go on and interpret that and do risk assessments for their own population. So you might say um, in different populations, perhaps with different genetics, perhaps with different cultures, perhaps with different ways of drinking hot drinks, um, the risk would be different. I mean, there's not a lot of mate drunk in Australia. So probably the risk of drinking mate at a hot temperature in Australia is very low, very low the risk that you will get cancer. On, but in, say, Uruguay, that risk might be higher. So the risk assessment really needs to be done for the appropriate population. Um, and so that's not IARC's role. IARC's role is to say, yes, this is carcinogenic. Now you need to take that information and go on and do risk assessments in your own countries to see what the problem is. 
Have you been surprised at the global reaction to this IARC finding? I mean, Monsanto and CropLife America, they've been, they've been actually driving efforts for the US government to cut off funding for IARC because they've been so aggressive about their condemnation about this finding. Have you been surprised at the vehemence of that? Yes, I'm just a scientist and I went there to do science and I, although I probably shouldn't have been surprised, but I was, I, I found the personal attacks particularly, um, not particularly on me, but on some of the other panel members, particularly the American panel members, quite amazing, really. Um, it's, we, we looked at the science, we looked at the best we could, and I was surprised at some of the reaction that came out, yeah. So, Lynn, one, I mean, one of the reasons is that there was a, another study done by the United States uh, in the United States called the Agricultural Health Study or the AHS. Now, that study was quite a big study, as I understand it, and it did not find an association between non-Hodgkin lymphoma <laughs> and glyphosate. Um, and on that basis, they're, they're saying that this recent case where a, a worker in Los Angeles has been awarded, well, I think finally around 58 million US dollars for that association is unfounded and based on an IARC study which didn't include relevant studies. I mean, how, how do you actually weigh all that up? And, and if that study came out after your finding, is there a possibility for IARC to actually review its finding and, and change its uh, view? Okay, so first of all, IARC do review their their findings in once a certain amount of of more evidence has has accumulated, they will review their findings. Um, but that study was considered by our panel. Um, there were a number of papers that had come out earlier than the most recent one that had come out and had had agreed there had been no association between glyphosate and cancer in that study. It's a very good study. Um, it's done very well. It's very large. It's across a number of states of the United States. And we, we, we considered that and we did think that that was an important study. However, there were another three studies um, which had been done in the US, Canada and Sweden, and they all found an association between glyphosate use and um, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is a type of blood cancer. And all of those studies had adjusted for other types of pesticide. All of those studies seem to be um, to be very well done as well. So those studies shouldn't be dismissed just because one large study found no association. So what do you think the difference was between those studies? Was it the length of time of monitoring? Was it the depth of study? I mean, why, why, why were they different? There's a whole lot of reasons why it could be different. Um, one is that um, it, it may be that none of them really got very good information about how well people were protected and how much they, they took control measures to avoid exposure. Um, if you're spraying glyphosate while you're sitting in an air-conditioned cab and um, you're not actually breathing it in or um, getting it on your body. That's different to if you're if you're spraying it with a backpack which leaks and has given you quite a lot of exposure. So we don't know those kind of details about what how much exposure each of the individuals had. Mainly, it was about um, the amount of time people used it um, used each type of chemical. Um, so, if regulators in Europe, in Canada, Japan, New Zealand they've all come back with a response so far that it's unlikely to pose any carcinogenic effect on humans. Um, and I noticed in the US that the EPA has withdrawn its report that originally it stamped as final 
in which it had said that glyphosate was not a carcinogen, but they've now withdrawn that in 2016 and are now reviewing that. So, I mean, they're all quite at odds with each other in one sense. Um, where do you think that countries are going to go with this? So in your experience, do they generally adopt IARC recommendations or are they just another piece of information? Um th- There's always a problem at the beginning of of looking at a chemical uh, where there's not enough information to be absolutely certain. And in the case of uncertainty, people always get worried and it results in lack of trust. So this is a problem with when you're looking at at um, at a chemical and you don't have enough information. So one of the things that's really important is that we do more studies on glyphosate to, to, to to make things much more clear. The other point to note is that we have been giving out the same information regularly. It's follow the manufacturer's instructions, minimise use wherever you can. If you don't need to use it, then don't use it. And if you do need to use it, follow the manufacturer's instructions and and follow them properly using the safety data sheet. Scientists quite often disagree, as you may have found, and, and that's not a problem. But we will sort things out in the long run when we get more data and that's and in the meantime we do have a strong message for people don't use it where you don't have to and if you do use it follow the manufacturer's instructions um could i just finally ask you where you think where do you think we're going to go to from here in terms of the use of glyphosate if you had to be a betting person and you uh, you know these farmers are now looking on to this knowing how important glyphosate is for them making their plans for the next couple of decades, where do you think we're going to go with this? Do you see glyphosate is going to be available as an ongoing tool or do you think this is the beginning of the end for that product? Um, well, we're still using a lot of things that are um, we know cause cancer, um, such as smoking and such as a number of chemicals which are still available. IARC is often, like you say, the first step in a assessment of whether we should, as a society, whether the risks outweigh the the, um, the benefits. And uh, we all understand that glyphosate for many farmers is really important. It's increased crop yields. It's been, um, been really useful for farmers. And um, so obviously we don't want it suddenly um, to, to have a ban, but we do think people need to be careful with it. And we do think we need more information and more um, reputable, independent information that that adds to our knowledge about this chemical. Professor Lynn Fritchie, thank you so much for, for bringing us the benefit of your scholarship and knowledge. This is all about information. Time spent in reconnaissance is seldom wasted, to, to quote a famous principle of war. Um, this is a very critical situation and I think you've been able to help us understand at least where we're going, what we need to do. Um, and we wish you well in that ongoing endeavour and we really appreciate the benefit of your, uh, your scholarship today. Thank you, Chris. So we've considered this problem from all three angles. We've looked at it from the manufacturer's point of view, a manufacturer who's been making this chemical since 1975 and who has been selling it globally. We've looked at it from the point of view of the crop producers, the people who have been both the beneficiaries and also potentially the victims of any cancer-causing issues. And we spoke to one of the scientists behind this and behind the recommendations that have now been made as regards its potential carcinogenic effects. So the decision is up to you. Like so many things, 
The implications for glyphosate are significant. But what price our health? What price our production? We've heard all the arguments, and as Lynn said, there's no doubt further studies are needed to guide us through that. Join me again on AgriMinders. Special thanks to the AgriMinds Think Tank Group. AgriMinders was presented by me, Chris Russell, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Executive producer extraordinaire was Jenny Goggin. Sound production by Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search AgriMinders on Apple Podcasts.